Hello and welcome back to the podcast. You may notice that there has been a name change. What used to be Inner Outer is now the Inner Path. Both names really mean a similar thing, but I think the Inner Path is a bit more representative of the common thread that runs through all of the episodes and the overall message that I am trying to convey. Because even what is external from us, I believe it all begins with what is within, and that is a place that we should be looking, especially if our focus is too much on the external world. Additionally, episodes were published weekly, but I am now beginning a bi-weekly frequency which will allow me more time for research and drafting. The reason why I enjoy this longer format is because it provides me that room for storytelling, research, and exploring nuanced ideas. When reflecting on these topics over a longer period of time, it allows for more thoughtful analysis, especially in the style I have chosen, which is more of an audio essay than an unscripted, free-flow commentary. Each episode is very much influenced by my own life experiences, but I really do try to dive deeper than providing only my own opinion and integrate various different ways of looking at the subject matter through mythology, spirituality, philosophy, psychology, sociology, etc. I realized that especially with this episode and even a theme in it is taking our time and dedicating ourselves to something in the longer term. And I realized that in a way I was rushing to tie this all together because of the pressure that I felt to have something to publish. And in those moments, I really notice what we will discuss later on in this episode, but it's this idea that we constantly have to be putting something out into the world and for it to be fully formed and be very proficient at something and yet have acquired certain skills in a very short period of time. With the podcast and the newsletter, I aim to not recreate the internalized algorithmic machine of social media that tells us if we do not post every day, multiple times a day, that we will become irrelevant. I have no doubt that the message will reach the right people and also that there will be longevity in each episode. It's not just relevant to what may be trending or in everyone's consciousness right now at this moment. There is definitely social commentary, but I hope for someone to gain the same amount of value in perhaps even five years listening to these episodes that they would now. Some of my favorite books and even sources that I will mention are from a very long time ago that have withstood the test of time. And on that note, I think that's a really good place to dive into the episode which is examining the path of self-mastery, artistry, and devotional practices. I will discuss what we can learn from craftspeople and artisans about devotion to a practice for a long period of time. I explore the path of mastery, at least the first inklings of understanding I have begun to pick up as a novice of this concept. 
And I touch on this pressure to achieve proficiency and success at a young age and how that can actually lead to distractions that move us further away from pursuing a more meaningful life in all of its mundane glory. I admire those who work with their hands on meticulous tasks. To watch closely as a carpenter carefully cuts his wood at a precise angle or as a weaver runs her fingers through parallel pieces of yarn. To witness this feels like a transcendental spiritual experience where in that moment we are connected to something greater. I could watch for hours the hands that sand, knowing that the burning in their biceps is a similar sensation to what I feel standing in my studio holding arms extended at shoulder height in proper form. The muscles turn to heated coal, but the mind perseveres until the pain transforms into a subtle ache. Discomfort dissipates into the ether and becomes only a dull sensation as the focus grows more intense. The first time I ever witnessed my own fascination with tactile abilities was watching my father work on projects around our home when I was younger. I have said many times throughout my life that he is capable of building or fixing anything. I have tested this theory even until adulthood and somehow have never been proven wrong. One of my earlier memories, I must have been about five years old, when I realized that my beloved wooden rocking horse had broken, I did not react with tears, but rather calmly approached my father to tell him what happened. He took it into our garage, filled with every tool you could imagine, and managed to save it from being thrown out. It seemed that somehow, even at this age, I was aware this object held some sort of value. The mane, eyes, and mouth were all carved into the wooden structure in such realistic detail. Careful paint strokes accentuated its features. I would not have been satisfied with a brightly colored plastic replacement. This was one of a kind, not one of the many identical toys stacked upon metal shelves at the toy store. Stepping into the fluorescent lights and endless aisles of those mega stores were supposed to be a child's dream come true going there overwhelmed me in the same way amusement parks did. Often, I would get permission to go with my father to his workplace at MacArthur, one of Los Angeles's most cherished historical buildings. Once a lodge and hotel, it had now become a prestigious event and filming venue. I marveled at the way he would balance on the towering ladder, reaching a fine-tipped paintbrush towards the cathedral-style ceilings. With a steady hand, he would fill in the paint that had chipped away from the elaborate Anthony Heinsbergen murals. Even at home, he continued building. He crafted a surprisingly sturdy lounging deck on the second story of our house to replace his old bedroom balcony with hardly more than some nails, wood, and a handsaw. It was obvious to me this was one of his gifts, but one that he had worked to achieve, this ability to both ideate and create. I realized that the capacity to renovate, restructure, and restore is most successfully done from a baseline of knowledge. To develop such practical expertise, to look at a thing and know the most efficient yet simple way it could be mended, requires a 
thorough understanding of the necessary skill sets and materials at hand. To understand how to form shapeless clay into vase, turn metal sheet into jewelry, or spin only on the ball of the foot with perfect balance requires months, years, even decades of training, practicing, and refining. My own fascination for many subjects and disciplines has led me on a very non-linear path of experimentation, seeking breadth over depth. Since I can remember, I have been driven by an intense curiosity to seek out experience in various different fields. Starting new projects is easy for me, but it seems unfathomable to commit to one skill for a longer period of time. How does one not lose interest or be enticed by the allure of a different art form, practice, or career? It wasn't until having to come to terms with a decision I would need to make that I began reflecting on my own interactions with artists and artisans. I had not previously given much thought to why seemingly unrelated disciplines mesmerized and perplexed me. It didn't seem to matter whether the end result was the development of the body or detailed illustration. The answer is manifold. There is an aspect of preserving culture and tradition but I wanted to examine what exactly the characteristics were that I found so fascinating in this relationship between person and their craft. Are there commonalities I can observe across many different art forms and even athletics? Every person who comes to my mind seems to have developed a sense of mastery. The people whom I admire and respect the most have deep knowledge of something, whether it be a certain language, practice, craft, or tradition, and they have devoted their lives to it, or even a chapter of their lives to it. In a short documentary made about his practice, Shaolin Master Shi Hang Yi says in order to gain insight, to look deeper into something, you must spend more time with that thing. And this means, why are we sometimes calling people masters? Because more than anyone else, these people are spending their lifetime, their training, their mind, their focus, their concentration into something where other people say, why should I do this? End quote. I seemed to face a crossroads in my life to continue being spread thin, pouring energy and time into many different ideas and projects, or to scale back and develop a steady focus in a concentrated area over a longer period of time. While my inquisitiveness led me in the direction of unique experiences and opportunities, I lacked the single-pointed concentration needed to understand something at a deeper level. Practicing dance with an exceptional amount of focus seemed to eclipse any preconceived idea I had previously developed about motivation or dedicated effort. While I had enough self-discipline to graduate from university, train for a marathon, my relationship with dance was of a different accord entirely. It taught me the concept of devotion. I felt as though I was propelled by a force greater than myself to show up every day, to wake up each morning at sunrise, prepare my studio, and begin once again, regardless of exhaustion or sore muscles. 
One of my teachers, who roots his practice in ancient traditions, spoke to this concept of mastery within our style of dance. Our classes dived into the wisdom traditionally passed down from teacher to student within the setting of a dojo. We explored the concepts beyond the physical form to discuss key principles from Taoism, also called Taoism, a philosophy and religion, or some just call it a way of thinking, that originated in China around 100 BCE. Like any knowledge tradition, everything is not revealed all at once. Certain practices and ideologies are taught. The students that meditate on these ideas return to class and ask more questions to gain insight. Even beyond their interactions with the teacher, they engage in contemplation throughout daily tasks as their minds open one petal at a time like a lotus flower. It then makes sense why those considered to be the great sages or philosophers throughout history tend to be in the mature years of their life. The archetype of the wise old man or old crone is seen throughout countless mythological stories as well as contemporary media. They have been through the trials and lessons of their own lived experience, which typically through life's hardship, suffering, and loss has revealed a shimmering pearl of truth about the nature of humankind. From an aesthetic view, the old wise one is typically unassuming in their presence. They are cloaked in hooded garment, meandering along as any other villager may have been. Gurus and swamis wear a simple cotton robe, the outfit of a young painter whose studio was down the street from my workplace. A very used t-shirt with loose-fitting jeans covered in splatters of dry and fresh paint was indistinguishably the same attire that my father wore to his job every day. What seems simple from the outside perspective holds the most profound depth. The more I study those who follow a path of mastery or devotion, the more I notice what many would call the mundane. Many mornings of the same routine, long hours of chores and physical labor, priority given to research, study, and practice done with attention and intention. These ideas seem to be opposed to the expectations and incessant pressure I feel to achieve a sense of greatness, proficiency, and success at a very young age. The generation I was born into values the notion of overnight successes. There is an endless stream of content regarding how to become a millionaire in a month, a week, or even one day. We idolize people in our society who can quickly turn ideas into multi-billion dollar companies, even if it is later revealed that they used unethical methods and built an empire on dishonesty. We are drawn towards the stories of those who achieved fame and financial abundance before they may even be the age to participate in certain societal activities, including purchasing alcohol or registering to vote in an election. It is now possible for a 12-year-old to make more money than their parents' combined lifetime salaries from a social media platform, or for an 18-year-old to have an audience larger than some countries because of one single post that went viral. I think the shortcoming here is that we seek the immediate rewards and external gratification by choosing to do what may be the most well-received in that moment. But this is not 
usually what can endure through time or it may lead to the greatest development of self. Our attention is spread thin. We go from one thing to the next, believing that it will give us the sense of satisfaction that we seek. We ask ourselves if we should make certain artistic sacrifices and even moral sacrifices in order to see a greater return faster. We aim to achieve similar results as others by doing the same thing they have gained recognition for. But when our goals become entirely based on the value placed on it, what we choose to focus on changes. It is no longer about the process itself, the inward journey, cultivating a long-term practice or developing mastery. It becomes about the optics rather than our own understanding of an art form or practice. The path of mastery requires awareness of these distractions. Those on this path must develop the tolerance of being amateur for a long time and still not give up. It requires for focus and attention to continually come back to a single point. I do believe this path promises great rewards, and although it may lead to material gain, this is not what is important nor what should be strived for. The real gift and purpose is the deep understanding of oneself and the inner wisdom that is cultivated. This is more valuable than any sum of money, any position, title, or award. As author George Leonard says, perhaps we'll never know how far the path can go, how much a human being can truly achieve, until we realize that the ultimate reward is not a gold medal, but the path itself. Like the gray-haired crone sweeping the floors of her home, the meticulous painter, or the monk weeding the garden, all that which they have gained along their journey only needs to be validated internally. And they live humble, modest lives. They share their wisdom when appropriate, but for the good of others, not notoriety. They know their own peace, they are aware of their breakthroughs and progress. And in this, not only do they inevitably find wisdom, but perhaps they're closer to knowing some of the truths of life. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We are now on episode 5. You can go to the link in the show notes where it will take you to a written version of this essay and there's better opportunity to have dialogue and conversation there. Feel free to send me a message on Instagram. My handle is at sage.wilder. And you can also send me an email from my website, sagewilder.com. If you were really loving these weekly episodes, please let me know if you would be interested in subscribing for a small fee every month to get an additional episode every week. As much as I try to be objective in some regards. A lot of this is subjective and through my own experience. Your experience may be completely different. There's also so much that I don't have the opportunity to say or tangents I don't go on in just a 30 or 40 minute podcast. So on on the newsletter specifically, I think there's more opportunity to really go even deeper into these topics and where you as a listener has the opportunity to put your own thoughts and reflections and perspectives and experiences out there. 
that's all for this episode. I will see you back here very soon. Bye!